0: Today on In Context, Michael teaches from Psalm 32, previously recorded at Ramsey Solutions. And now your host, Michael Easley. Psalm 32, a Psalm of David. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check otherwise they would not come near to you many are the sorrows of the wicked but he who trusts in the lord loving kindness shall surround him be glad in the lord and rejoice you righteous ones and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart this psalm is sometimes called a penitential psalm but it's it's unusual because it's full of penitence of thanksgiving of wisdom it's a very unusual psalm. Some believe it follows Psalm 51 in chronology. You know, the psalms aren't ordered chronologically. We don't have time stamps on most of the text. Sometimes we do. We have a little superscription that tells us we don't know here. We're not even certain it's a Davidic psalm, but it seems to be a psalm of David. And many want to attach it to the story of Psalm 51, which of course was the great penitential psalm after David had killed Uriah and had the baby with Bathsheba, and the baby had died, and We know that psalm hopefully pretty well. But this psalm begins with a blessing, and I don't like the word happy. NIV uses the word happy here, but it's a close concept. Blessed is more an acknowledgement of what God has done for me in spite of me. Uh, I don't deserve it. So I'm not just happy that I get to go eat lunch today at a nice place. It's a blessing that I'm understanding this is a joyful thing. The word here actually is asher. If any of you are named Asher, it's a happy, blessed term. How happy is he whose transgression is forgiven? There's three parallels. Transgression is forgiven, sin is covered, and to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. If we were to spend time in these phrases, it's the comprehensive nature of sin. And the psalmist is beginning saying, you know, if you understand your sin has been addressed, you are forgiven, and God doesn't impute. That's a word a lot of you know. That's the word reckon. In the accounting world, you reckon an account. It's the same word biblically, and there's a nuance there that our sin is accounted like a registry, like a PL sheet, like an Excel chart. Your and my sin is on the negative side of this thing. And so the psalmist is saying, you're blessed when the Lord does not impute, does not account your iniquity. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. The good moves from this beginning blessing, almost a summary statement of what he's going to talk about, to the bottom real quickly. I kept silent. I wasted away. I was groaning. Your hand was heavy on me. This is the misery of sin. And I don't know if you've been there in your Christian life or not, but probably a lot of us would say we have been there. We have been at the bottom of the barrel Because of a self-inflicted wound, we've done something, it's egregious, and it's overwhelming. Some of you know my story, and not to whine or complain, but just as a point of reference, I live with chronic pain. I've had four back surgeries. Right now, I'm functioning very well, in God's great kindness. But there's been times when I'm on the floor, and my feet are up at a right angle on a chair, and I lay there for weeks because narcotics, medication, therapies don't help, and I'm waiting for surgery. And I often lay there, you can't really read, you think, oh, I'll use the time to read. Well, you can't read when you're in a lot of pain and you feel terrible. You can only watch so much television, that'll make you more depressed. Uh, You can't binge watch Netflix, trust me, for three weeks, Um, you get to that point of no return. So you have a lot of time to think. (laughs) And when you lay there thinking about how miserable you feel, it's a cycle. And that to me is analogous to being overburdened by the guilt and the consequences of our sin. It's a heavy time, and that language is exquisite. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality is drained away. So this is a pretty out there confession. And again, that's why many want to attach it to Psalm 51. He continues in verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, twice in your Bible, you might have the little word selah. We don't know what that means. It's superfluous to even talk about it. But more than likely, it's some kind of interlude or break or maybe refrain, but we just don't know. But it's there for us to wonder about. It breaks the psalm. That's what's important. So these thoughts are at least paused by the reading. Oh, wait a minute. He said something pretty profound there. I acknowledge my sin. I confessed. I will confess. It was a choice of the will. I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave. Notice he doesn't just say my sin, the guilt of my sin. Obviously, it's one and the same, but when a child comes to you, you teach your children to say you're sorry to your brother. Sorry. Say it like you mean it. Sorry. Say it like you really mean it. Sorry. You know, and We're trying to get a pound of flesh out of a kid that doesn't want to say he or she's sorry, right? but you're trying to teach them what it means to apologize and get forgiveness. Now, when it's legitimate, you know it. You can look in your child's eyes, and you know when they're genuinely sorry. You know when they're sorry they got caught versus when they're sorry for what they did. we got four kids. They're all unique individuals. And some of them, the repentance comes very quickly, and it's genuine. Others, you know, you got to get a pound of flesh out of them before they repent. And that's how we are. And the psalmist is saying here, He forgave my guilt. The guilt is gone. If you had to study Macbeth when you were in college, you know, out damn spot. She couldn't wash away the guilt. There wasn't enough soap and water to get rid of the guilt. The consequences of sin are a fascinating thing. And the psalmist is acknowledging the guilt of my sin, even that he forgave. Therefore, verse 6, let everyone who is godly pray to you in the time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. For those of you who like to study the Bible in detail, one of the things you want to watch in the Psalms is repetition and parallelism. For example, the one I just read strikes the chord. Hiding place, you preserve me, you surround me. And there are a lot of triplets in this Psalm where he's restating similar ideas. Now remember, the Psalms from a corpus of literature were songs And so the theology, the history was taught in a a, a singing way, and it would be very, very likely, in fact, most pious Hebrews knew the entire songbook verbatim, just like you and I know certain hymns verbatim, certain praise songs verbatim. The ancients knew the Psalms. This was their text, but they learned history in the process. It wasn't just say the same thing 10 times. And the psalmist did repetition in a different way. It was restating the same theme. And the idea was those parallels, then the structure would get into our heads and we'd realize, oh, he's my hiding place. He preserves me. He surrounds me with songs of deliverance. And then in verse eight, it changes. And this is the didactic or teaching part. The psalmist is now saying, okay, it's really great when you get forgiveness. This is what it feels like when you're under the guilt of sin. Now let me teach others what this means. And so the psalm changes in verse 8 to a wisdom psalm. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And again, instruct, teach, counsel. There's another triplet. Do not be as the horse or the mule which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold in check, otherwise they will not come near you. It's not a pretty metaphor. Don't be stupid. Don't be like an animal that has to be bridled and bit to get their attention. Think about this in relationship to what he's talking about. When you're in sin, don't be stupid. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness. That's the bingo word in the Old Testament. If you use the New American Standard Bible, it always translates it the same way. If you use the ESV, it always translates steadfast love. If you use any other Bible, you're on your own. Loving kindness is the single most important word in our Old Testament. It means God loves to be loyal to his people and to his promises. God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promises. And so when the psalmist ever mentions this, this is the ding, 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 ding word you should pay attention to when you're studying the Psalms or any of the Old Testament. The one who trusts in the Lord, God's loving kindness, look what it says, shall surround him. There's no greater blessing in life than God's loving kindness be on you and me, which becomes the synonym for salvation in the New Testament. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Verse 1 and verse 11 are parallel. They're like bookends on the psalm. And if you want to read it, study it on your own, I encourage you to do that. But i want to draw a number of observations and applications from the psalm. And you can jot these down or take a nap or whatever you need to do. Number one, the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. The Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Christ and Christ alone, his spirit indwells you in me. And his goal is to conform us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So his work in your life and mind of convicting us is not just to make us miserable, a guilty conscience will make you miserable. And what do people do with a guilty conscience? They anesthetize it. They avoid it. They medicate it. They distract themselves from it. They surround themselves with other people who are in like situations in life to anesthetize, to insulate them from the reality of that pain. We see this when men and women have affairs all the time. When they have an affair, they don't hang out with other people that are really strong in their marriage and love Jesus. They run around other people that have gone through divorces or affairs. They insulate themselves because the guilty conscience has to somehow put salve on the wound. Holy Spirit, yes, he can be aggravating if we look at him that way. But if we look at him as the agency of God's spirit, encouraging you to me, come back. Come back. Come back. Preachers in the 40s called him the hound of heaven. that he pursues you and me no matter how far we go. He's relentless. He's tireless. He sort of yaps at our soul, our heels, so to speak, to get our attention. The Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. And he loves you. Probably one of the major things Dave Ramsey has taught me in the nine years, I guess, that we've been friends has been God's not mad at me. That's a good reminder for me. He's not mad at you. And the Holy Spirit's not mad at you. He loves you, and he pursues you. Secondly, we have a deficient view of repentance. We have a deficient view of repentance. that We know 1 John 1, 9 too much, too well, too quickly. It's like playing Monopoly, give that a jail free card. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm at bingo, I'm free. It's like when your son or daughter says, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Well, you know, they're not legitimately sorry or wrong. They're confessing because they have to. And I think in the Western culture especially, we have anesthetized so much of our sin life. Repentance is not a genuinely sorrowful turning from. The idea of repentance is we turn from one thing to another. The Bible never just says stop sinning. It says stop this and do this. Peter's instruction is always how about be a blessing instead. or to change that energy and direction to something positive. I don't know what repentance looks like for you. I know repentance is not penance. It's not working off your sin, but repentance is an acknowledgement that what I've done is wrong and I make no excuses. It's a little different angle. Lewis Smeads is the one that said forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and realizing you were the one in prison. And there's a corollary to that when we're unwilling to repent, we're the one who's held captive by our own guilt and shame. And so we have a deficient view of repentance that we need to be sorry for our sin and acknowledge our sin and own our sin. If you spend any time around people in recovery and the recovery language, the nomenclature that the recovery community uses, one of the things they train folks in is being able to say, I regret with no conditions. I'm sorry that, and you can't blame the other person. I regret that I said, I regret that I did, I'm sorry for that. And you don't qualify it. I thought, you know, recovery community's got some something on the Christian community. Because we're always quick to say, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but you know, the reason I did that was because I had this pressure. We have a poor view of repentance. Thirdly, forgiveness does not necessarily mean God removes the consequences. Not a real joyful thought, but a true one. It doesn't mean God's going to remove the consequences. Look again at Psalm 51 in David's life. After he murders Uriah the Hittite, after the baby's born and dies, his kingdom is destroyed. He loses almost two-thirds of his kingdom in the ensuing months after that event, of those events. And uh, it's a sordid, sordid tale story of the consequences of sin. The difference is we have a gracious God. God did not totally annihilate him. He didn't destroy him entirely. And the lineage of David kept on. But... Scripture does teach that God removes our sins, but there might be consequences from our sins. Then we're back to the balance of living under the weight of that where the psalmist says how joyful it is to have your sins forgiven, your transgressions forgiven, you're removed, they're not imputed to you anymore. So that becomes sort of the maturity part of our Christian life going, yeah, I really messed up, I screwed up, I own it, it's my fault. And then to go forward, God loves me and forgives me, he's not angry with me. But there may be consequences, and we learn and limp through those consequences. Uh, fourth, be assured he does forgive you. He does remove it. It's been adapted by lots of people. Corey ten Boom, uh, I've heard other preachers use it, that when, uh, when it says the scripture removes our sin east is from the west, he writes it on a piece of paper, he throws it in the ocean, and he puts a sign up and says, no fishing. He removes your sin from you. That's a good thing. What's interesting, what I just said before about the consequences may not go away in our life. God's removed them from his perspective. That's a beautiful thing. That's an encouraging thing. That, yeah, I limp a little bit because of my sin, but he's removed it so far as it can be measured. We need wisdom when it comes to sin. The psalm is full of a corpus of wisdom. Live well. Confess your sin, don't cover your transgressions, all these kinds of things that we understand. And wisdom beckons the believer. Wisdom is the one that says, hey, come over here and let me show you something. If you study Proverbs, if you don't read the Bible through in a year, that's fine. I'm not going to shame you into doing it. But what I would say is read Proverbs one chapter a day. In a year, you'll have read through Proverbs 12 times. It's, you all know this already. But wisdom in chapter 8 shouts. Wisdom is depicted as someone on the top of a building shouting, come to me, all you simple and naive, which aren't bad terms. The fool is a bad term. The simple and the naive are the ones who need to learn. Wisdom is available to everybody. That's the good news from the wisest man in Scripture. Come to me, come to me, wisdom shouts and beckons. Wisdom is depicted as this is the way of God. Walk, way, path, all the movement, language, in wisdom literature is to follow God's way. This psalm talks about the wisdom of avoiding sin, the wisdom of confessing sin. Wisdom calls to us, and that's the best news. No one in here is too simple, including me. I can learn. I can take God's wisdom, and wisdom prevents me from getting in that situation. When you and I begin to grasp forgiveness, that's real joy. A lot of things in life make us happy. And as I get older, I'm going to be 60 here in just a matter of days. And it's been an interesting. Some of you hear me talk about this all the time. I'm sorry. Uh, but i to be 60 soon. And it's been an interesting evaluation of what does that mean to get to be 60. Some of you are older. I'm glad. It gives me hope. When you get to this place in life where you start understanding, um, these things I thought were going to make me happy, and then I got them. I think it was Haddon Robinson that said, uh, yesterday's new car is today's trade-in and tomorrow's junkie. I got a new truck a while back, and everybody asked me, you like your truck? Like your... Yeah, I love my truck. It's a truck. It's just a truck. It has no hook on me. It's just a vehicle that I like. If I was stolen or wrecked, I'd get another one. It's, not, it's just a thing. So the acquisition of material wealth, which a lot of you work in that wealth community and wealth management, and that's part of the whole objective. I get that and being generous. I'm all on board. Don't hear me wrong. The question is, what makes you happy is going to change as you get older. And Scripture tells us the happy man is the forgiven man. The happy woman understands her forgiveness. And that's real joy. Not the acquisition of bigger, better, newer, more. Um, I don't know if you know the story of Charlie Wiedemeyer. He was a football coach at Los Gatos High School for many years, and he contracted ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and he finished coaching in a wheelchair, completely paralyzed. His wife could read his lips uh, enough to say what Charlie was saying, and it turned into an incredible ministry. He, he died in 2010, but he would go on these huge events, and the two of them would sit up there, and he's in a wheelchair, completely immobilized, and she could look at his lips and communicate for him. And national television, great story. But he had this saying that pain and suffering are inevitable for everyone, but misery is optional. Pain and suffering are inevitable for everyone, but misery is optional. You get to make the choice. And I think this is the relevant part of Psalm 32. We're going to have pain and suffering, whether it's a self inflicted wound, whether it's something that's unintended consequences someone else does to us, and their decisions affect and hurt and wound us, and we live with those consequences. But the psalm, the penitent psalm, is saying, Don't be stupid. Confess your sin. The wise man or woman confesses his or her sin. The one who's obdurate, the one who's like the mule or the horse, has to be bridled, has to be saddled, has to be controlled. Don't be like that animal. You'll be miserable. Pain and suffering are inevitable. We're all going to go through it. This is a typical Michael Easley encouraging message. (laughs) You will suffer. You will go through hard times. But Charlie Wiedemeyer would tell us, misery is optional. Here's a guy that was a very successful athlete who's completely immobilized now and has to have people take care of him, every function of his body. Misery is optional. So the psalmist would encourage us, there's no greater joy in life than understanding you're forgiven. And there's no greater misery than to cover it over and suppress it and try to dodge it. If you need forgiveness, do terms with your father. He loves you. and He's ready and eager in some human sense to forgive you. But you've got to own it with no But, or because, or just, or, you know, I did it. No, just acknowledge. In Context is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or monthly donation at michaelincontext.com? Thank you.